Welcome to the Faculty Lounge at the University of South Carolina. I'm Toby Jenkins, Associate Professor of Higher Education and Director of the Museum of Education located within the College of Education at the University. And I have the pleasure of serving as the host for this conversational series exploring critical issues within higher education. This series is inspired by the Actor Studio in New York City, a space where accomplished actors can come and perfect their craft, engage with other actors, and think deeply about the practice. Likewise, within education, I've invited national scholars, critical colleagues, good friends to come and sit and spend an hour in the faculty lounge wrestling with the issues of the day. You are welcome to come sit, listen, reflect, think deeply, and then go out and have your own critical conversations with your colleagues, friends, and comrades in the struggle. Enjoy. I'm very excited about this series that, uh, that we're launching this semester. Um, it's a public-facing uh, component of my diversity and higher education course. I'm so happy to share this, this piece of the course and our incredible guest speakers with the public. Um, Dr. Lori Patton Davis is one of the most highly respected, accomplished scholars in the field of higher education. So Professor Patton Davis is best known for her important uh, interdisciplinary scholarship on African-Americans in higher education, critical race theory, campus diversity initiatives on college campuses, girls and women of color in educational and social context, and college student development and graduate uh, preparation. She is a past president of the Association for the Study of Higher Education. She's the author of over 50 peer-reviewed journal articles, which makes me feel like a bum, like I need to stop this webinar immediately and go write something. Uh, so 50 journal articles. Her research has been cited in nearly 5,000 published uh, studies. So to get some context for, for, for everybody, like why do, do people name these numbers and, and things like that, what this all means is she's highly influential. Scholars across the country and policy leaders in the US uh, and abroad read her work and seek her expertise. And that is why we are extremely privileged to have her spend time with us at the University of South Carolina talking today about anti-Black racism and reimagining whiteness in the struggle for racial equity. Dr. Patton Davis is one of the dopest scholars I know. She is my friend, my comrade in the struggle, and a constant source of inspiration for me as a Black lady scholar and professor. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Patton Davis for joining us. Thank you for having me. You forgot Soror. Yes, and Soror. <laughs> yeah, so shouts to all the Deltas in the audience. Um, so let's just jump into it. You know that um, I'm a, um, a cultural scholar, right? So for me, everything I do begins and, and ends with culture, our families, our communities, our music, um, all of it, all of it matters um, for me. Yes, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, before becoming a scholar, tell me a little about where you're from, your upbringing, and how that matters to you. Like, how has your cultural and community experience influenced who you are professionally? 
Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> so before I even go there, I do want to thank you again for um, inviting me. I think doing this is just such a wonderful idea. Um, I hope other uh, scholars uh, model this for their classes. Um, thank you. Thank you. I, I uh, was born and raised in East St. Louis, Illinois. And uh, I say that with a lot of pride. Uh, and I've always said it with a lot of pride, but I think um, I, I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to say it with pride until I got into graduate school and everybody had read Savage Inequalities and had, you know, come up with this narrative, you know, about what East St. Louis is um, and, you know, what, what the education is and what the people from East St. Louis are like. Um, but I grew up um, with, you know, a wonderful uh, uh, set of parents and I was the youngest of um, three girls. And uh, my father had a military background. He was in the Air Force. And what was really important for me, as I think about what shaped me becoming a scholar, um, is that my parents never expected anything other than excellence from me and my sisters. Like it was an expectation. And I remember yeah. this from a very young age. Um, so they didn't expect anything less. Uh, and if we came with anything less, I mean, you know, they gave us the business, right? <laughs> uh, and so, um, and in addition to that, just having um, a, a large extended family. So my mother was from St. Louis, my father from Brooklyn, New York. And, uh, you know, this notion of excellence was just something that ran through the family, not a perfect family. I don't think any family is perfect, but mm -hmm. in terms of what has contributed to me becoming a scholar, uh, it was the, the family experiences. It was also being in schools where all of my teachers were Black, right? Mm -hmm. um, I never felt like I didn't matter, that my voice didn't matter. Um, I knew about respect. Um, again, just growing up in a community where there are expectations, even though this community is sort of forgotten, you know, um, within the larger landscape of Illinois or, you know, within our country. Uh, but it was always around high expectations, doing the very best. Um, and really, although we didn't use the language at the time, it was about doing it for the culture. You know, mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. you got to make your family proud. Um, you know, they're pouring all of their resources into you. And so um, that's the, the background that um, I think has shaped me. And I think the other piece that shaped me into really thinking about things really differently. Um, you know, some people think it's, you know, interesting. When I grew up, you know, the roles were sort of reversed. So my father did all the cooking. My father did a lot of the things that were are considered more domestic in nature. Um, but he taught uh, my sisters and I about what we should expect in a partner, mm -hmm. um, that we don't have to be defined by these uh, societal constraints that say, you know, women belong in the kitchen or, yeah. you know, women do the cooking. You know, he's the one who took us to basketball games and, you know, cheerleading, yeah. you know, all of these things. Um, and so in many ways, um, I think he modeled a, a more progressive form of masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I think about the work that I do as a scholar, I'm always, I don't just look at things because society says, no, it, it goes this way. You look at it this way. Um, and so um, it, it's things like that, I think, growing up that have shaped 
uh, my scholarly interest and then just having grown up in a school that didn't have the resources. Um, we were resource rich in terms of love and caring and those sorts of things, but mm -hmm. not in terms of money. Um, and so it's interesting to kind of be reared in uh, an educational system that um, that has been under-resourced, not because the people are, are bad or whatever, you know, there wasn't mm -hmm. anything we mm -hmm. did, but that there just wasn't a care for, you know, this predominantly black city, you know, in Southern Illinois. Yeah. So uh, uh, it took some time, you know, in terms of growing up to learn, like, what's the language? Like, you know, I know what this is, but I didn't know that it was called inequity, right? I didn't know it was called injustice. I didn't know it was called disposability. And so now as a scholar, when I write, you know, it's helpful to have some language to sort of articulate um, those experiences to others so that they understand um, that we don't blame people um, for their predicament in a society that sort of has co coerced them, you know, mm -hmm. uh, into that um, and that has uh, situated them in that way. Yeah, it's such a testimony to our, um, our parents, our families, uh, those teachers in those schools, uh, when you look at what their uh, students and their children have been able to go on to do without all that stuff. Right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. So I want to loosely uh, uh, base our conversation today on your work, Dear White People, Reimagining uh, Whiteness and the Struggle for Racial Equality. And, um, you know, this is a particular article, you know, I know you do a lot of work around it, but it's a particular article that you wrote some time ago, but unfortunately it's still relevant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not much has changed. Um, and, but in this particular article, it's a, a co-written article, and you and the co-author uh, began with Derek Bell's call for a white leader or the type of white leader who is mm -hmm. able to free white people of racism. And mm -hmm. I think this, this is really, really interesting talking about that type of leadership. So talk a little bit more about this. What kind of leadership does that involve among white people? And what does that look like in terms of like real concrete action? Oh, goodness. Um, so uh, first, shout out to uh, Dr. Chayla Haynes, who was my co-author. Uh, but so when we wrote this piece um, and, and thought about, you know, writing about whiteness, we came from a perspective of two Black women who are often, you know, were sought out as consultants, um, you know, uh, sought out for advice on how to, you know, how do you address, you know, racial injustice, all these pieces. Um, and the reality, or, or I guess the struggle with all of this is that that's really not our role, right? Like, um, I think, uh, you know, Black people and, and maybe especially uh, Black women are expected to save people. And what I appreciated about uh, Derek Bell's work and, you know, what really inspired this piece is that, you know, it's really not about, you know, uh, black people rushing to save white people and, and give them advice like white people need to save white people. Right. Mm -hmm. And here's how you do it. Um, and part of that is not expecting us to do it. Um, and so when I think about a white leader. Um, who engages in this work, it really is important for them to understand like who they are as white people, 
um, to understand the process of colonization and how it's sort of situated in the domination and dominating Black people, Black bodies, all of these other pieces. And so any white leader who's going to engage in that work uh, and do it really um, authentically um, will probably need to have a moment with themselves around who they are as white people, how they're complicit. Um, this doesn't mean that it changes systems or, you know, it, it shifts anything, but you can't enter into this work thinking, you know, that you can address anything when you haven't done your own work. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the thing, you know, as a white person, you need to do your own work. I can't save you, you know, you can't save them. Like that, I'm more invested in supporting um, black people and trying to help us undo or unlearn some of the things that we've learned um, and work toward our own liberation. I don't yeah, have, we have work. Right. We I don't have I don't have a bandwidth to save white people. Now I do have ideas and how I think about it, but I want white people to do that. And I think there are some white people who have tried to do this, but here's there's like a catch 22. Like you can't be white and do this work um, without also being critiqued for doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, being critiqued for the way you do the work. But I think as a white person committed to this, all the critiques and all these other pieces should just be, you know, uh, on the peripheral, if your commitment is true. Um, and one of the things that I've learned, um, uh, and I kind of saw it during uh, the, the White Racial Literacy Project that uh, I started at IUPUI, is that white people need spaces to, to unlearn and undo and, and work on their own stuff. And they don't need me there or anybody else. Like work on your stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and let us do our thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's what, when I think about a leader, it's somebody who has the capacity to, to, to say it. Like we need to do work. Um, uh, and, um, here's, you know, some ideas for how we can do this, um, and, and be okay with the pushback and being okay with being perceived as a race traitor and being perceived as, you know, being imperfect and all these other pieces that, you know, we all know white supremacy is real seductive, right? And, and makes white people feel like they're perfect or whatever. But, um, I think a white leader who is going to lead other white people has got to do some, some self-work um, and then have the ability to, you know, help those around them come into that same space. Yeah, it takes some thick skin. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I was often baffled by like looking at, um, particularly at senior levels, like vice presidents of student affairs, et cetera, who would be in sheer terror having to face students at like a town hall or you know what I'm saying or something like that and it's like you're scared right <laughs> like, that's what like called the n-word walking around camp campus and you're scared you're scared though. right we, we 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 don't have a choice but to have thick skin all day every day yeah like you can have it for this mm -hmm. um so being brave, being uh, brave. Yeah. yeah yeah one of the things last week um we began this class last week and um I started it by sharing with them a clip from I think it was an ACPA uh, like YouTube video and with like Jamie Washington and um, uh, Patty Perilla from University of Maryland and she and, and on that um, clip Patty was talking about the need to have space for people at these senior levels to do their work like and mm -hmm. to recognize that they need some some spaces 
to to learn and to not be so careful and um, and scared to really put themselves out there that mm-hmm. they don't grow and develop in some way because they're always being watched. So sometimes, right. you know, outwardly on campus, it doesn't feel, uh, you know, there's no such thing as safe, but it doesn't mm-hmm. feel, you know, necessarily like a safe space, but that we need to have some space. We need to create something. Um, space. So, so talk about this. Um, what You said something about because one of my students had a question about um, viable ideas. And you mentioned a project that you created, mm-hmm. um, White Racial Literacy. T- tell us about that. Um, so that was a, a project. Uh, it was funded by the Lumina Foundation um, and supported uh, by IUPUI. But the whole purpose of that was to you know, facilitate opportunities for white people to talk to white people about racism, racial injustice, how they're complicit, all these pieces. Um, And to, you know, remove this, you know, feelings of guilt because people of color in the room and, you know, like to to really let them have the space to do it and to hear from white people who were not perfect, who were still, you know, Mm -hmm. going through the motions, but were willing to have the conversation. That's what that project was about. Um, and, you know, you can imagine trying to implement that on the campus and the pushback, um, from people, uh, who are part of the campus. Um, overall, I think it was a really great, um, project by no means perfect, but it did at least reveal to me. And at at some point I want to write about it, the, 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 the level of resistance, like, you, you know, the resistance is out there, but the ways that you see it, you know, they're really interesting. And it's hard to implement a project like that at a predominantly white institution where the structures in and of themselves, you know, don't allow for, you know, such a project. Um, I think, you know, the leadership was really supportive, but the reality of it is, you know, how do you try to do work around undoing white supremacy in a structure that's built on white supremacy, right? So you anticipate all of these things that are, you know, going to happen. Um, but I think um, I always go back to the, the third piece that uh, Bale talks about in that article is, you know, the struggle for racial justice is pretty much a wash, you know, but it's still worth fighting for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that was, you know, one contribution. And I was, I, I will say I was, um, conflicted at times in doing that project because I kept wondering, you know, like, I need to be, I I just want to go do my research on Black women, you know, support Black women, do uh, Blacks in higher ed. Um, And I I alone can't save white people, you know, and that was, I didn't, I didn't want to do any sessions. I didn't want to do it. You know, I don't, I didn't want to be in the front of that. The goal was for white colleagues who were willing to be in that uh, with me um, to kind of lead uh, lead the way. So yeah. we we got good feedback, but I mean it was a real struggle. Yeah, yeah, as it always is. I mean it's it's a taxing. It's it's um it's a lot. You know, mm-hmm. it's a lot. It's a lot to experience these things, but it's also a lot to um you know as joyful as it is to see. Uh, ideas come to fruition and to uh, to try to, to, to create service opportunities and, and everything for educational opportunities for our campuses and for the people around us. Um, it's still exhausting. Yeah, you, you it's know. exhausting, yes. And so, it was deciding on what, what, what thing I really wanted to be exhausted on. You know, oh, yeah. do I want to be exhausted dealing with, you know, white people who don't want to change? 
do I want to devote my energy to the ones who are willing to, you know, be in the conversation, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, lots of feelings about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You also talk about in this work, the idea of whiteness being invisible. Um, And that, that one particularly stands out for me. Um, Many years ago, I wrote this article um, and the title was snow is only white in our imagination. And I talk about uh, my work with white college students um, around cultural and racial identity um, and, um, and getting them to wrestle, you know, with their own cultural and racial identity through a cultural leadership course. Um, But I compare it to the idea of snow and how in our imagination and how we paint snow and pictures and everything is always, you know, white and fluffy. But the reality is when you live in a snow state, you know that maybe the first day is white, but... (laughs) But then it turns gray and, and right. dark and dirty and, mm-hmm. and everything because um, people live in it and mm-hmm. walk through it and, mm-hmm. and cars drive through it. Life happens to it, right? And no one, no one is blank, right? right. We all have um, experiences. And, and so, you know, this, uh, you know there, there is no such thing as this whiteness as a, a, a blank slate. Um, and in this piece, you say that racially minoritized people see whiteness every day. Um, and uh, whether white people see it or not, that, that mm-hmm. uh, minoritized people see it every day. And so before I ask you to, to, to speak a little bit more on that, I just want to, for people, because uh, we have such a, a, a broad range of, of folks sitting in um, on the class, um, the word minoritized, we're saying minoritized rather than minority, um, because uh, it is a situation, not a, a kind of... Um, a value of a person, right? So when you when you use the word minority, that denotes um, a level of importance, right? So when you think about the big best example is in college, like we're in, we're in higher education. So in higher education in college, you have a major and you have a minor, and which one is the most important? The major, right? The minor is just kind of like an afterthought. Um, there's a weight of importance that comes with those two words, and you don't mm-hmm. want to apply that to people. So people. Um, aren't really minorities, but they are, or minor, um, but they have been treated and put in, in um, situations where they're treated in a minoritized way, right? So I just wanted to give some clarity for that and the, these terms that we use. Right. Um, but talk to us a little bit about um, how, how folks see whiteness and why that's so important to, to state explicitly. Um, because I think when people think about whiteness, they think about normalcy, um, think about it as just the everyday, something that we don't see. And it is everyday, but if you are a racially minoritized person, I think it is in clearer view. Um, so not just seeing white people, but seeing whiteness everywhere. I mean, we're on a white man's internet right now. You know, yeah. like we are, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of everywhere. Um, and while, you know, I'm not thinking about whiteness or white people 24 seven, I am conscious of the fact that it's there. You know, I'm, I'm conscious of where I purchased a home. I've, I'm conscious of the fact that some of my neighbors don't, may not have, are surprised that I could afford the house or, you know, I'm conscious of the, the local schools and, and I know that they're not predominantly black, they're predominantly white, you know, so there are a lot of things that I do just on a daily basis. And I, you know, I know that um, the reality is 
you know, somebody might look at me weird or um, I might, you know, begin to feel like I don't belong or, you know, any number of things. There's so many, right? Um, but it's, you know, part of our language. It's in APA. Like, you know, it, it's everywhere. And we see it because we sort of deal with the material consequences of it and realize that, you know, the way we live our lives or the, the fact that we're minoritized allows white people to live the way that they live, right? Um, because there has to be this. Because um, uh, we're so far over and it gives them so much room. Right, just just spread all the way out, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, the other piece around this, uh, which is interesting, so we, when you talk about how this shows up in the classroom, you know, I've done activities with students and, you know, ask them to think about their identities. And you have white students who are like, I'm from Kentucky, um, you know, and all of those, that's fine. But for them, they're not forced to really think about uh, a racial identity. They're not forced to think about how whiteness shapes how they understand what it means to be white um, and whether and, and I think the other piece is that to not identify as white or to try to um, or, or to fail to really uh, grapple with whiteness it allows a lot of white people to fly up under the radar right um, and be perceived as good people because when you're talking about white people you're talking about bad people or you know so I think there are all of these um, reigning discourses around uh, whiteness um, that that don't really allow, well, I won't even say it doesn't allow white people to see it, but it does allow them to engage in willful ignorance of it, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to see it. Um, or I can say something happened to me and you can enter into that conversation and say, well, no, maybe it was this. You know what I'm saying? It's like almost trying to deny an experience just to maintain whiteness. And so that's what I mean. It's, it's, there, there's the uh, more concrete way that we understand whiteness um, and we see it, but there are all of these abstract uh, constructions of whiteness that are all around us. Yeah. Um, and I'm just aware of them. Um, how, how can you not be? And that doesn't mean that every person of color, every racially minoritized person gets it, but you know, for those who say they don't get it, they tripping, like, they tripping for real. Oh, yeah. no, you cannot see it. <laughs> but, and that's, that goes back to the work that you're saying, the other work that needs to be done, because there's, there, there's so many, um, you know, people within the minoritized group that we have, that need work, that need the, the work and the education and the learning and the development and, you know, and, and, and everything. Um, and they need, and I think there's a way to come to understand and learn about whiteness that, you know, it may cause feelings of shame and guilt and all of this other stuff, but I'm talking about the kind of work that gets you past that. Because yeah. to be stuck in shame and guilt means you're centering whiteness, right? Not centering what you do about it. Yeah. Um, and so those are the kind of you know, educative spaces that I would love for white people to engage in and not expect me to plan it or in all these other pieces, but you do it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, we all got access to Google and yeah. can look up ideas. Um, yeah. I mean, which is what, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, I can speak just from my own, per my own experience as a black person. We've, we've been doing that for years. So we were educated in the same 
school systems that didn't teach about black people. And so much of what <laughs> black people learned about themselves or about blackness, about black history, they learned themselves, like, right? It was Carter Listen, G. Every man I, has two educations, one that's okay. given to the one that he gives himself. And here's the thing, I was talking with um, Taylor earlier today about this. And I was like, you know what, to me, it's like a little bit of a slave mentality, right? I think some white people are really caught up in the dynamics of white supremacy so so much that they don't realize that it hurts them you know mm -hmm. it hurts those around them and you know when we talk about a slave mentality for you know black people it is you know you know catering to this you know white idea ideology or whatever but i don't think we're alone you know some people who you know are in that space or what is a sunken place now right not right <laughs> but you know again it's this it's it's seductive it is comfortable it's all of these pieces and um there's another way to be and that's the that was the hope of that article to help you know or to contribute to let's reimagine what whiteness is it doesn't have to be what we what what minoritized people experience it as but it also doesn't have to be what white people experience it as yeah 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 it's hard stuff but it's so it's also invigorating to um, to elevate your your thinking, yeah, like to to learn new things, and even to look back at yourself like, oh, I can't believe, I, I, like all of us, us, you know, hopefully do that. And so it's a it, it's an important thing. So I want to move into some of the questions that my that my students had. Um, Paige Finney um, asks, were you ever uncomfortable addressing white people about their whiteness and the institutional racism that's involved because of whiteness? Uh, and if so, like, how did you, how did you overcome that? Um, to me, there's never comfort in talking about whiteness. Um, but like, I think talking about it is inherently uncomfortable. Like I'm talking about a system that has, you know, historically and in current context, you know, marginalized, killed, mm -hmm. you know, um, like people who look like me. Um, and so to me, there, there's never comfort in it, you know, and I, when I'm in spaces and I'm talking to white people, there's no comfort in it. Part of the comfort is, you know, will they get it? You know, am I wasting my time? Uh, which is why, like, at this point, you got to pay me. Like, I, I can't, no, no more freebies, right? Um, if I'm gonna go, because it's an emotional, it, it is emotional to talk about it because I'm, I am talking about something that is systemically harming yeah. my family, mm -hmm. you know, my community. And so I can talk about it and I can do academic speak all day. I'm comfortable in that, you know, I know, know that, but the feeling you know, the emotionality of it is never comfortable to me. Yeah. Um, but in terms of feeling like discomfort, like, you know, I might get fired and, you know, all these other people, like, I don't even, I'm honest when you hire me. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, if I'm talking about whiteness or racism and all these other things, that those should not come as a surprise. Yeah, you know who you, you know, who you, <laughs> you know who you hired. Yeah. Um, Jessica Walsh, as, um, so, okay, now you're talking about being in the space that you are professionally now, right? Um, which is kind of different, you know, uh, tenured full professor, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but she's talking about in an entry level position, 
where we lack authority to make large scale change, what are ways that we can make the biggest impact to change the systemic racism that is interwoven in the structure of college campuses? Um, so for those folks, just kind of starting out in their careers. You know, um, I think it depends on who the we is because the work looks different for what I can do versus what a white colleague can do versus what a man can do versus what a woman can do versus what, you know, a transgender person. Like, you know, like there are all of these pieces. So it kind of just depends on the we, but I've always talked about, you know, working within your sphere of influence. So by encouraging a faculty member to um, re redo their syllabus so that it's racially just, that's, their influence is in the classroom. Does it shift the whole atmosphere of the campus and you know change the structure? No, mm -hmm. but it has the capacity to really shape the experience of uh, the racially minoritized students in the classroom and you know the white students in that classroom. And so, to me, it's about working where your influence is. If you're in an entry level student affairs position in the residence hall, you know what does your floor programming look like? You know, what do, what do your conversations look like when you are an RA? Like, what do you say when you notice something racist happen or someone hangs, you know, something racist on somebody's door? What's the response to that? Is the response to just simply address the student who was harmed, which is, you know, of course, very important, but it, it's, I guess, more meaningful if you're also addressing the person who perpetrated it mm -hmm. and addressing the larger you know residence hall so that they understand why something like that is problematic why it hurts why it's harmful where it comes from yeah. uh so and i just not think pretending like the rest of the hall didn't see it right because right. everyone was impacted by it if, if right and so that to me it's it's just about you know um influence like in terms of the elections in November, you know, I can't change how political parties spar with one another and all of that. All I know is I got to vote. So mm -hmm. I'm going to vote, you know, um, I don't envision myself running for office, but for some people that, you know, is where they feel like they can make a change. So they run for office. So I think it's important to just think about what resources do you have at your disposal? Because those are the resources that you have authority over. So I don't think anybody lacks authority or lacks power, mm -hmm. but it's honing in on what is the power you have and how are you going to use it to, you know, change this microcosm. Like if everybody, you know, worked on their own <laughs> sphere, then we see more of a, a, a massive change. Yeah, because it's happening everywhere. Right, it's and happening people everywhere. underestimate if you are in any type of um, space interacting with, working with, developing college students, I mean, that's, that's a huge sphere of influence because you're yes. talking about stewardship of people. Right. Um, They're going to graduate, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we want them to graduate and know what it's like to be a citizen who cares for other people, who, yeah. you know, is fundamentally committed to, you know, the idea of community and democracy and all of these other yeah. pieces. Yeah. So you just never know, you know, the one conversation can shift for somebody who just never got checked you know they never had the conversation no one ever told them you know that they were problematic so yeah yeah, yeah. if you're academic advisor think deeply about the classes that you're encouraging them to take right and, you know right. there's so many things that you can do without you having to be the facilitator of it 
Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so then now Michael Stewart, uh, he, in the article, so he, he, he looks at a quote that you had in the article, which um, mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. So um, there's a, he references a quote that says something to the fact that even the wokest white people are starting off as recovering racists. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, essentially it's talking about how everyone has been affected by racism in some way. So his question is, in today's society, particularly in youth and online culture, where it's like being described as racist is unforgivable and about the worst thing that you could label somebody as, um, how do you allow for individuals to grow and change? He says, obviously, there are a few behaviors and actions that you can't be explained away with simple ignorance. But what about those who get labeled or like some type of permanent scarlet letter imposed on them for comments made when they were a teenager or a very young adult? Like, where's the line drawn between forgiving and ostracizing? Um, I like this question because college is such a critical space of like stepping outside of what you've always known and what you've always been exposed to or taught and, um, and growing your knowledge or your experience and your exposure, just generally growing as a person. Um, mm -hmm. But allowing that space for people to actually do that, to not be only who they were on Facebook right. their junior year in high school before they came here, that type of thing. Um, you know, on one hand, you know, I, I think when we're talking about, um, for example, you know, white people who maybe in their past, they posted racist things on Twitter and all that other stuff. Um, you know, I think that's up. So forgiveness is not owed, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's up to the person who was harmed to decide to forgive. And whiteness is expecting forgiveness in the first place, right? That's not something black people, like you, we just don't get forgiven. You know, <laughs> people still tripping off Michael Vick and those dogs. You know what I'm saying? Forgiveness is really contextual. Uh, and, you know, we've seen a lot of incidents where, you know, the, uh, well, a lot in the park or, you know, people saying that's not me, you know, forgive me, all these other pieces. That's up to that person. And if they want to forgive you, fine. Like, I don't, everybody, is, is in, in some way, I guess, worthy of redemption and can change. Do your work and change. Like, but your change shouldn't be contingent upon whether or not you're forgiven. You know, um, if, if, if the ultimate goal is working toward forgiveness, then do the thing, you know, continue to say you're sorry, you know, but actions speak louder than words to me. So it's different to have said these things long ago and they pop up on your you know uh twitter feed and people are kind of throwing it in your face mm -hmm. do you have something in the present context that refutes that that shows the growth you know what i'm saying that shows there's a change that shows that you know um you realize that those are wrong you know um and i and again when i think about forgiveness it's contextual black people don't get forgiven not in ways that, you know, we've been socialized to believe we need to forgive white people when they make mistakes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, tell me two things that mm -hmm. have to change in mm -hmm. order to achieve racial equity <laughs> and Ooh. racial justice. 
Um, one thing that has to change is our expectations. Uh, again, we can't expect the whole universe to shift off of one good deed or, you know, one good person and all, like, I think if, if we have oftentimes unrealistic expectations around change, and it's not that change can't be immediate um, or urgent and all these other pieces, but we're talking about a system that is, you know, massive. It's, it's this, this old, this is, you know, it's really old. Like how, <laughs> Um, well, you know, like it's speaking to that comp, that point of oldness. Like one of the things that just always grounds me, I have to always go back to, is when you think about what it is for something to last for like two hundred and fifty years. So this going back to slavery for two hundred, like for something hundreds, hundreds of years, like not fifty years, you know, not seventy five years but hundreds and not one time that someone like people were just going along with this they never thought that there was anything wrong with it for hundreds of years <laughs> like that, then you can understand what your because that was extreme and right. people were cool with that for hundreds of years right and doing it far more publicly yeah you know that than we do it today you know like i, I mean so to me one thing has to be around expectations. You know, our institutions, you know, if you know the history, you know, read Ebony and Ivory, you know, like, mm -hmm. no, I'm, I'm an Ivy, um, but systems like ours, our higher education systems, all the, you know, our um, uh, uh, money, capitalism, like, uh, these things don't just change overnight. They just don't, uh, I wish they did. Um, <laughs> But I think uh, our expectations need to change around what change actually looks like um, and understanding that, you know, the reality, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Has there been progress? Yes. Is it where we need it to be? Absolutely not. Uh, and it's taken a long time. I mean, think about it. For Kamala Harris to be, you know, uh, a vice president uh, a candidate, like, you know, that's something unheard of. Um, and so it means something. Um, and it does symbolize some aspect of change, but there's a lot, you know, a, a lot that still needs to uh, to happen. So uh, that's one thing. Um, I think the other piece around racial justice, again, when we think about who's doing the work, it is often racially minoritized people. Um, and we don't need saving by white people, right? We, we just don't need it. Um, we need white people to save themselves. But here's the reality in that, like, I mean, white people gonna save white people in, like, you know, they're gonna do what they do. And so that's not to say I, I have lowered expectation for, you know, for white people, but I'm not going to set my hopes on them changing in order for me as a black woman to experience liberation, right? I, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. Um, but I do think one of those changes has to be white people stepping up. Like, you just, you, you've got to. Um, you know, if I see another video of some, you know, white people walking around with guns feeling threatened when there is no imminent threat, like, you got a white family member who knows the truth, 
I want that white family member to talk to that person say, put your gun away. Like, let's talk about this. Like, let's, let's, let's clarify. Um, and so uh, I think uh, uh, there's a lot of fear, uh, unwarranted fear, by the way, um, that, that makes all of these expectations really challenging. Um, this, I think the system stays as it is because people are scared um, for it to change um, without realizing the possibilities, right? There's, yeah. oh my goodness, um, there's so many possibilities. If we could just kind of let go of what we believe life, you know, society, this world to be. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So, um, okay, I'm gonna pull one question from the chat uh, and then we'll, we'll have to close. I have about, do you think one of the changes has to be more democratic system because our system is not? Um, mm. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna butcher your name. <laughs> <laughs> who that comes from but thank you for for submitting that one but yeah so do you think it it um there has to be like a, a, a true creation of a democratic system that could be one change um but even i mean to some level you know democracy is power laden right <laughs> um i um it's not that I don't believe in a democratic system but i just wonder what are the possibilities if we think beyond you know, what we have in place. We might not even have a word for it or a language for mm -hmm. it yet. But the, to me, there's just some other possibility, some other future out there. Um, and we haven't tapped into it. Yeah, yeah. And that's what, like, one of the, the things that I've been writing about lately is, is how we need to transform our work um, in education to try to develop inventors. Because, um, yeah. because really, the the core of any type of real change requires invention. People that, mm -hmm. that have mindsets and think um, outside the box, yes. mm -hmm. create new things. Um, all right, so I wanted to end up uh, this particular series um, comes from my love of inside the actor studio. I love it too. <laughs> and so in, for, for those that are like younger and maybe inside the actor studio, I don't even know if it still comes on, but the actor studio was um, a, well, is, it still go, goes on. The actor studio, um, I think Al Pacino is president right now, but it's a, it's a space, a workshop for um, accomplished actors to be able to, to spend some time in New York and work on their craft and do it in a space where they can be actors and not be celebrities and, and you know, pulled on in, in that way or whatever. Mm -hmm. and so um, it, it was a, a community of like really well-established um, actors. And then I think it was Fordham that, um, that adopted it and it became a part of their theater program. And so when it became a part of the theater program at, um, at the university, they developed this um, lecture, this large lecture course um, where students could just come and, and watch um, and sit in on a conversation between the professor of that course and um, one of the actors in the, of the actor studio. And they would be like really famous actors. So you're sitting in and you're watching a conversation with him and Tom Cruise or him and, you know what I'm saying, et cetera. Et cetera. And so, um, so that 
series, the uh, professor was James Lipton. And he ended the series with these quick fire questions that he adopted from Bernard Pivot, who was a, a like French scholar. Um, and there they was this, this list of random kind of questions that every guest on the, in the actor studio um, answered. And so the faculty lounge for me is a reinterpretation of the actor studio and inviting my colleagues in, high, in um, higher education to come sit in the faculty lounge and have a conversation. So I wanna end our conversation with these quick fire um, questions in honor of Bernard Pavot and James Lipton. Okay, what's your favorite word? Mother. Mother. What's your least favorite word? Hmm. Hate. Mm. What excites you professionally? Um, uh, contributing to substance of change or inspiring others. Mm -hmm. What turns you off professionally? Profiting off of black pain. Mm. What are your two favorite books dealing with race in life? Fiction or nonfiction? It's two Ooh. books. Um, I'm going to say a more recent book I've read is uh, Heavy by uh, yes. K.S.A. Lehman. Yeah. Uh, woo. Um, and then um, an older book, uh, Sister Citizen by Melissa Harris Perry. Mm, okay. What is your favorite protest song? It's a hard one. Uh, right now, uh, My Petition by Jill Scott. Mm, yes, that's on Black Lives Matter, Spotify. <laughs> I listen to it a lot. <laughs> um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, screenplay writer or filmmaker. Oh, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it too. Yes. <laughs> um, what profession would you suck at? I would say a pilot. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> <Didn't it? laughs> um, all right, if heaven exists or whatever afterworld one might believe in, if you believe in an afterworld, what would you like to hear God, Allah, Ra? whoever that um, entity might be, what would you like to hear uh, them say when you arrive? Um, I would want them to say, well done, and then to hand me a mic so I can drop it one last time. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. Thank you uh, for so having this, me. <laughs> this video will be available um, on the uh, Museum of Education's YouTube channel. So um, I will clean it up, edit it, and, um, and, and post it um, there. And I will try to send, if I'm able to send all of the panel, all of the attendees, um, the, the link to it uh, so that you are, um, you're able to access it. Um, but thank you all for attending um, to my class. Um, you have time to, they're going to be writing some op-eds in response to this conversation. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking yeah. forward to reading. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I will be uh, sending an email with just reminders and, and everything for um, this, this coming week. But thank you everyone for, um, for uh, joining us today. Take care. Thank you, Lori. Bye. Thank you. Bye.